staying organized, you know, which is, I think, the biggest challenge when you're in pre-production uh, is that, you know, at some point you are going to start losing your shit. And how do you how do you sort of, uh, you know, keep that keep everything together enough to get through the shoot and not, you know, skip on anything that's going to kill you later? Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 32. I'm Elise Sieverts. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are speaking with writer, director, line producer, Arthur Vinci. We discuss his book, Preparing for Takeoff, pre-production for the independent filmmaker. His new web series, Three Trembling Cities. And what is a A line producer? I don't know. I just feel like there's always yeah. a, there's always a siren. There's always there's, there's, oh, yeah, yeah. something. Just, there's got to be something. A jackhammer or something <laughs> in oh, the distance. Yeah. Or not Where are you so from, Arthur? Uh, I'm from the Bronx originally. Oh, okay. Um, so you are native. Native New Yorker. That's a sec- like second uh, native New Yorker in a row. Yeah. It's a little. Um, so my family moved to up. Uh, well, what to New Yorkers consider upstate New York. Anybody from upstate New York considers Dutchess County downstate, but, you know, <clears throat> I'm not going to quibble about that. Oh, people uh, do, though. I so have we, witnessed many a quibble about oh, yeah. what is considered upstate. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so we moved to Rhinebeck when I was 11 and then to Poughkeepsie when I was 13. And then I got the hell out of Poughkeepsie as soon as I turned 18, came back here. And, you know, I wanted to move to L.A., but um, I just kept getting work here, so it just seemed easier to stay here than to start, you know, start over from scratch. Um, but, you know, we'll see. But, yeah, I guess I consider <laughs> myself a New Yorker. I, I mean, I think I must be a New Yorker because I'm also sick of New York at the same time that I love New York, so. Yeah, but <laughs> you have a, a love-hate. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good yeah. definition of it. If Yeah, if you don't love and hate it, then you, you're not truly someone who lives here i don't think is your I, I know your wife you said your wife was an immigrant did she then live here is this the first place she lived in the u.s uh yeah yeah so she um she's from uh calcutta okay. um and came here for uh grad school um so she's now uh at the she's at the cuny grad center and teaches uh as an adjunct at uh, hunter college well cool. so. and she helped influence your new web series that you just did yeah yeah um so the the um the the original idea behind it was just to to come up with something that was um you know i didn't have a sort of grand scheme in mind i just had these two characters i wanted to write something about and they're both loose very loosely based on my wife and her former roommate who is uh, also a grad student from uh, uh, Romania, which she's Hungarian. She's ethnically Hungarian from Romania. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but then as I was trying to come up with the storyline, I realized that, you know, there was this bigger, um, one of the bigger themes that kept cropping up in their dialogue and in their scenes together was the idea of, uh, of being an immigrant in New York. And then, um, I realized there were a lot more uh, 
there was a lot more to be said about it. And so I started also pulling in stories and characters that are based on other people I know. Cause I mean, this is, I mean, a lot, I just have had the good luck of working with a lot of immigrants and knowing them and dating them in the past, um, being married to one now, of course. Um, so, you know, it seemed like, um, it seemed like, uh, uh, a topic people weren't talking about very much in the media. Um, and then it became sort of, um, uh, and then it kind of got the, the story kind of assembled itself mosaic, like, uh, it, which is kind of the way I, uh, um, have been working the last couple of scripts, um, instead of sort of starting with a firm outline and, and knowing exactly what I want to do, <clears throat> I end up starting with characters and then f- trying to figure out what's going on with the characters and then building up the, building up the story from there. So, um, either, <laughs> so either that's, uh, usually it's, it's not a bad way to work. Although I usually end up in a dead end at some point about halfway through and then I have to back out and then correct. So sometimes well, it mean, takes me a while to writing takes a long time anyways. And oh, God, writing yeah. is rewriting. So well, you guys have, have both written yeah. a lot of stuff. So, well, know. I mean, I don't know if I've written a lot. She's written way more than I have, but, <laughs> but yeah, I still a feel like a, a, I'm learning a lot though about writing. I, I think that's a constant learning. Oh yeah. Learning curve. Yeah. Um, how, like your own process and how to do it and how to build a story and like stuff you see in your head how to get that to read on the page so that when you're collaborating with directors or dps like they understand what what's happening and and all of that yeah well Well, and then also like i think sometimes i mean i don't know if if you have this experience as well certain certain stories write themselves differently like certain times like it's maybe this idea that comes to you and then you broaden upon it and you make this create this world and this happens from it. Or sometimes you know exactly what you want to write and you're not exactly sure how to flesh out the characters or like what, whatever it is about that particular thing, you know, I think it comes to you in different waves, or at least that's been my experience that it's not always just one set way. It's kind of the, the, the part of creating, right. Is, is you're always figuring out something new. Oh yeah. Um, the last couple of scripts I wrote, were, uh, I mean, usually <clears throat> what happens is, um, I'll be reading or researching something, uh, and then, um, that, that some part of me will file that for later. And then, uh, sometime after that, I'll have a dream. The dream will be, you know, really, um, <clears throat> sort of, uh, uh, detailed and vivid. And I'll wake up and, uh, start, putting together some kind of outline based on it. And then after that, um, uh, I'll start integrating the, the, the research, you know, I, I know that sounds kind of weird, but like when no, I wrote, not at all. um, this, um, sci-fi film, the, the last feature that, that I made, um, that was based on a dream and also some characters that I'd had sitting around for a while that I didn't know what to do with. Um, and uh, also a little bit about, you know, sort of thinking a, a lot about time and the nature of it and how sort of almost impossible it is to really talk about it in a non-circular way. You know, like, what, you know, what is it? Uh, um, how do you, um, how are our identities bound up in it? You know, 
Um, one of, so, sorry to interject <clears throat> here, but one of the things, because um, I watched the feature in the beginning where they're sitting at the street table and he goes to get lunch and he comes back and he's like, oh my God, that was so fast. He's like, no, it wasn't. Like that was the longest line ever. And I, it made me think about how many times in life that stuff seems like to just fly by and other times it's like a snail, you know, crawling across your kitchen table. But it could, I mean, it was 10 minutes and 10 minutes, but one feels, I don't know, I thought, that film did a really good job. That moment particularly just was like, yeah, I feel that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. No, that's, that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad because, uh, I mean, that was kind of the idea. Uh, that was kind of the idea was that, um, that, you know, one way to look at the film is what if our perception of time is actually the way time really works and this idea of this sort of um, metric time, you know, like every second is equal to every other second. And there's sort of a linear path between the past, you know, what if that's actually just a, uh, a ruse or a, you know, or, or, or a convenient fiction we tell ourselves, but the truth is actually this messy sort of back and forth thing and time accelerating and skipping and, and, and jumping around. So, you know, that was kind of the, one of the, the, the big sort of thing I was playing with. Um, I did actually do some research into people who call themselves psychics. And that was one of the things that they talked about is that they have trouble sometimes distinguishing between the recent past and the recent future uh, because their sort of um, sensibility, I guess, you know, the way they explain it is that their instrument is more sort of sensitive. So sometimes they uh, will pick up on something that a client has had happen to them already and think it's in the future. And other times they'll think something has happened that's actually going to happen. You know, I, I'm always skeptical about that, about what people claim, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of cool. And if it's true, then that'd be interesting, you know? That is interesting. Like, it is. Like, it's almost like memory <clears throat> and how memory works. If, oh, yeah. If you're seeing the future, you can't distinguish that between a... Oh, we have a dog toy. Uh, <laughs> distinguish that between... Um, the past. Yeah, right. that's the, I, li I really like that. Um, one of the things I really want to talk about is your book that you wrote about oh, yes. pre-production. Um, because I know um, I've had people come up to me with the podcast and be like, have so many questions, especially, especially actors wanting to create their own work. That's kind of who we cater the show to. Um, they feel like they can figure out the stuff on set, you know, if they get a good DP, good director, but sometimes that pre-production stuff, and, and I see it a lot in like first drafts of scripts that are, you know, multiple locations, hard locations, yeah. cafes, <laughs> bars, clubs, whatever. Yeah. But um, so Arthur came to the filmmakers meeting and talked about this a little bit. And I just, I would love for you to, I don't know, jump in and talk about your book and um, what people, helping people that are listening, like if they have this idea for a project, where to kind of start with the... Okay. Um, sure. Well, I mean, I guess um, I had this uh, desire. I was writing a lot about uh, the filmmaking process behind Found in Time and a bunch of people came up to, you know, kept telling me, why don't you write a book? You know, you could just take your blog posts and stick them in a book and it'll be fast. It's like, <laughs> like I, was, I don't know how writing a book is. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I kind of knew that that was probably bullshit, but you know, the more I <laughs> thought about it, you know, I was in this period between finishing the film and not knowing quite yet 
what the next project was going to be, the next fiction project was going to be. And so, um, and I was waiting here back from festivals. So it seemed like the, the moment to do that would, would be right then to, to write the, the book. And, um, and then the thing, the question was, what's the, what is there that I could write about that people haven't written as much about? Cause I think there's a, always a lot of, there's a ton of books out there, really great books about writing, about production, um, directing post and, and now there's more and more work about distribution, but I, th I felt like pre-production was, it was kind of getting the short end of the stick. Like it was usually sandwiched into the first few chapters of a bigger book on, on production. And some of those books are very good, but I thought, why not just take a whole book on, on pre-production? The other thing I noticed was that there was this real, um, in most of the books I read uh, and and um, looked at, um, there was this v very big distinction between the director's track and the producer's track, um, and and those are really different functions. But the problem is nowadays, independent uh, film people and web series people have to do both jobs, for better or worse. It's just the way it is. Um, <clears throat> Even if you are working with a producer, if you're a director, you're, you're going to take on some of the producing uh, responsibilities, whether you want to or not, um, even if you have a producer with you. Uh, and, and the producer really should also know about, even if, it's, even if he or she has no interest in becoming a director, really needs to know the directing side as well. And that way, the two, you know, even if you have two people doing the job, they can communicate with each other better. So I thought, all right, well, that's a book that, you know, I don't see anybody else writing, so why don't I write that? So it started with, um, and then once I made that decision, it kind of, everything kind of fell into place. So the book kind of takes you from the, I don't get into financing very much because that's like its own uh, Another enormous, beast. <laughs> yes, enormously and there depressing are tons topic. Of books written yeah. around yeah. that too yeah. as yeah. well. So I kind of talk about, you know, taking a script that you think you're ready to start with and then going through the process of rewriting it, breaking it down from a director's perspective, also breaking it down from a production perspective, doing a schedule, doing a budget, also getting your cast, um, you know, sort of cast breakdown together, um, the casting process, location scouting, hiring crew. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention in the book uh, another thing I thought was kind of lacking was like, you know, the, um, it's hard to write a book about people skills, but I felt like that was something I needed to address also. Cause that was one of the biggest learning curves for me, especially in my early twenties was learning how to play well with others. You know, I mean, I came from a writing, my dream as a kid was to be a writer with a day job. So I wasn't very, um, you know, my, my world didn't include like <clears throat> the collaborative process, you know, it was just like, I'll be off in my room I'm writing and, and <laughs> yeah, and then go to whatever job I could get to, to support myself until I became Stephen King. So, you know, or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but then when I discovered, you know, film, you know, kind of incorporated all those other interests that I, that I had, uh, photography and, um, you know, and, and working visually, uh, it seemed like much more interesting than just, I mean, not that writing isn't interesting, but it seemed like it would be more complete. Um, but that also meant working with other people. And I wasn't very good at that at first. Uh, in fact, I was really terrible at it. So, um, so, you know, looking back, you know, many, many years later, I thought, well, here's something else I could offer 
people just starting out is like, here's some tips about how to work with people, how to be a leader, uh, without being a jerk, but also without being a doormat, you know, sort of that, how to, how to look for the right people to fit with when you're hiring them. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. And then just staying organized, you know, which is, I think the biggest challenge when you're in pre-production, uh, is that, you know, at some point you are going to start losing your shit. And how do you, how do you sort of, uh, you know, keep that, keep everything together enough to get through the shoot and not, you know, skip on anything that's going to kill you later. Like, you know, yeah. you didn't get your contracts or you you didn't clear the music or, you know, any of the stuff that's going to, is going to destroy you when it's time to distribute your project. You know, so what do you think are some of the, <clears throat> the biggest pitfalls that first time filmmakers run into as far as pre-production goes or what's your experience in hearing from people? Um, you know, it really varies. Uh, I mean, I, and I'm sorry, that sounds oh, like no. kind of a cop-out answer. It's not a cop-out. No, that's um, so true. But um, I think, uh, so um, I'll see a lot of times where director or writer has indicated uh, some very specific music cues. They're probably not affordable. Um, and Or the director has fallen in love with a piece of music um, that is, it, it, or it might be affordable, but you know, no one did the research, and um, and they made it all the way through production and maybe even and post with the queue intact, and now they've got to clear the rights. Um, and the problem is that that's something that that any every distributor will like. The first thing any distributor asked me, um, well, the first thing they usually ask me is who's in it, and you know, when I tell them no one you'd know, then the next question is. Or I tell them the cast list, and it doesn't mean anything to them. Um, they're great actors, uh, but but then the next thing they want to know is, do you have the music rights? You know, they don't even care about like the contracts. They assume that I can deliver the the physical stuff to them, mm -hmm. like that they need. Um, that's so interesting but, that that's that's the second thing that it's they, usually the second thing, like, which. Yeah. I mean, to me, that just says how, first of all, how expensive music rights can be, yep. but also, um, <laughs> also how important it is to, to get them if that's the second thing yeah. a distributor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, they, sometimes I get questions like, you know, did you, what did you, can you deliver on the mediums, the media that we need? Um, did you do an M and E, a music and effects mix, which is what foreign distributors want uh because they're going to take your your beautifully um uh your your beautifully spoken work and then dub it into uh into another language usually I, I, they're getting better but <clears throat> but often you'll 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 see um they'll redub your your they want the ability to redub your work into whatever language the territory is that they're going to sell the, the work to um so yeah music and effects uh, mix, um, music rights. And, and, uh, sometimes they want to know if I have errors and emissions insurance. And, but usually the, those two things, M&E and E&O, they can work around, but if you haven't cleared your music, they'll be like, nope, you know, call us back when you, when you've cleared that. So it can be a real barrier to, at the end of the project. Um, other things that are problematic are not getting release forms from your actors. Um, that's yeah. a biggie. Because um, then you got to go chase after them later on. 
And we're not easy to get a hold of. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. we, that's, that's not, not your not, fault. Not, not, all, not all but. of us. I mean, I feel as if I'm quite <laughs> responsive, but I mean, a lot of people too, like, you know, once people are done with the project in their mind, they're done with it a lot oh, of times. Sure. sure. So, um, you know, I think, uh, another thing that, that producers don't always account for when they're going out first time is if they're going to, if they're going to bring in SAG, uh, after actors, they need to talk to SAG and get the contracts, get their signatory stuff squared away before the shoot. Um, <clears throat> or they need to have a, a very honest heart to heart with the actors to say, look, I can't, you know, I can't fork over the the health pension and welfare payments and do all the other stuff that's going to add to my budget. Are you willing to work on this? I think what happens sometimes is that the actors, they don't, they wait until the last minute to have that conversation. The actors feel put in a really difficult spot because they have to pick between their union and the project, uh, which isn't really fair to them. Um, they can sometimes get in trouble with the union. You know, if the union ever finds out that you're working on a non SAG project, they'll be like, Hey, you can't do that. We, we're going to find you or, or put you out of, you know, um, make you what they call financial core. Um, you know, the truth is, is that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm largely pro union. I, I wish that the, sometimes I do wish that SAG after, um, uh, had, uh, maybe slightly less, uh, onerous health pension welfare requirements because they keep raising the percentages every year. Or if they had some kind of clause where you could, if somebody was really getting almost nothing, they could be treated as a subcontractor. But I also understand at the same time that that's how they protect their, their workers. So that's, you know, so, you know, if you're, if you've, but if you've gone the way, all the way through pre-production, you haven't budgeted for that. Um, those fringes, the employee fringes and the um, health pension and welfare payments, then you're, you're, you know, you screwed up. Um, and, and you could, I mean, the other way to go is just to say very clearly up front when you're casting, you know, this non SAG, and then if somebody who SAG applies, then you you can say, look, you know, I I I want to be you know clear with you. I can't I can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's up to that person uh, whether to, to to jump on the project or not. At least they know upfront, you know. Okay. This yeah, they're is... not getting a call like at 10 p.m. Yeah. the night before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, by the um, way, yeah, that's you know, never fun. Um, sometimes I think. Shooting in cars is really more challenging than uh, people think it is. It seems easy. It's a contained space, but um, it's it's a tight space. Because it's contained, there's only so many angles you can shoot. It takes a long time to block properly. Um, and if you're rigging something to the car, like the camera, uh, that can sometimes take a while. There's also, you know, where do you put the sound person? <laughs> you know? In the trunk. Uh, in the usually. trunk. You know? <clears throat> where do you put the Which where do you put the crew? Nice yeah. 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 Um, are you in a parked car? Are you on the highway? Or you know, I mean, it's so, something I think a lot of um, folks don't don't think about. I mean, I think it's very tempting. I mean, I've I've been tempted to write like sort of the American Road movie, but uh, just thinking about how to make the car car scenes look like something besides every other car scene that's ever been filmed ever is kind of has stopped me from wanting to write that. And also just knowing how long it can, it can, I think once you get it down to, if you sort of make some decisions very early on, it doesn't have to be the end of the world, but, but basically, um, 
it if you haven't planned that out and thought that through, it can really screw you on the day. You know, when you're on set and you're like trying to figure out the right right angle well and i like something um you said at filmmakers was car scenes are actually exteriors and sometimes people don't think about that either with whether it's weather or lighting or you know um because then you're fighting the sun you're fighting weather and all of that not just fighting figuring out the angle in the car (laughs) yeah yeah that's true i mean that's the thing is like you know uh what's going to happen to the rest of your crew when it's raining outside um i mean that can there's there's ways around all those things. You just you want to think it through a bit before you um, uh, when you're in the in the planning stages, um, and and that's also when things are cheapest, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, because you can always rewrite something if it's really a problem, um, you know, or find a better location or something, you know, if you give yourself enough time to make up for lack of funds, um, you can, you can usually find some creative solution to the problem. Uh, I have a question about has, now that you've written a book on pre-production and you know, all these like tricks to save money, has it affected your writing? Like that balance too, of like, not, Kind stifling. of, yeah, stifling yourself of, of your imagination of not being able to do these things because of money, but also being smart about it. Like, how has that worked? Because, um, yeah, uh, it's certainly, um, it's certainly affected my, my writing in some ways. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so when I was writing Three Trembling Cities, um, I wanted to set as much of it outside as possible. Well, thank you. Um, because, uh, outside, at least in New York is relatively cheap and it looks great. You get a lot of the city for your, for your, you know, for your dollar. Um, and I think the city is really important for that web series too, to feel that energy and and what's going on and it's a foreign place and it's kind of this hustle bustle too. And the, even just like the subway and the the colors of everything too were yeah you know yeah i mean and and in, you know in retrospect i wish i had set even more of the show outside um you know there's a lot of stuff in the in the last half of the show there's a lot of times when we're in um the apartment between the three guys uh the three musketeers and we could have set at least some of that out in the park where we where we shot some of the other we shot one one scene in the park between two of the two of the guys and it's it's a great park and it's very um uh it's very photogenic because you got this uh fantastic view all the way out to jersey from there um but yeah so shooting outside i'm always thinking about how we can um shoot outside i also think about like how can i have um I, I've never wanted to do the one room movie. Uh, but you know, if you're going to do like multiple location movies, how can you do it so that you're, you have an entire day or multiple days in one space. So you're not moving from place to place within one day. So if you have like a movie where there's, or a web series where you have one scene that's in one place that doesn't, connect to anything else you're, you know like I'm, al- I'm always trying to eliminate those like how can i and and of course that it's not perfect like in three trembling cities i needed a conference room and i'm like 
I kept hoping that I would be able to find a conference room somewhere else where we were already shooting and it just didn't work out. Uh, fortunately, I, um, one of the folks from the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival, uh, like one of her day jobs was at a, um, uh, was at a, a office with, that had a conference room and they were like, hey, yeah, you can come in. Just don't, you know, break anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, <clears throat> and, and I did try, I thought, you know, there's got to be some way I can rewrite this scene but the scene was uh, was like a flashback to this um that this lawyer is having and where else would she be but at work you know so like okay that's it's got to be there um but yeah generally speaking i try to consolidate locations um if i have a character that has only one line in the whole thing i'm going to give that to somebody else and get rid of that person and that's one less person i got to cast sorry <laughs> actors um well and then one less person you have to pay yeah then you yeah can exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah um you know Transport. when I, oh yeah yeah you know i came very close to not having uh, the three musketeers were almost two musketeers um but then i realized that <clears throat> given that they're all sort of making very crap wages at a restaurant that realistically speaking, you would need at least three, three guys living in that apartment, uh, to make the rent and to make, you know, even if they're, they're, uh, cooking from home almost every day, um, that, 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 that you would need the three, the three folks to, to make that work economically in New York. I wanted it to feel like a New York. That's one thing uh, that drives me crazy about some TV (laughs) is like, Oh, This painter has this really nice apartment um, in the middle. That's just, a load of crap. Yeah, he oh, yeah. can live in a place like yeah. that. That with the particular wages or lack thereof. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, I've known, you know, I've had friends, there's like five of them living in an apartment because with the number of people that you increase, the amount of the rent decreases. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah. yeah. I mean, friends is the epic. Oh god! Like, yeah. Well, they even comment on, on it like all throughout the show. They're like, "This was my grandmother's, yeah. and she gave it to us, or she, like, she owned this back in the blah blah blah." blah. Yeah. yeah, it's just like they they have to because people know. Like, if anyone has ever been in New York, they're like, "That's just a lie." Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Seinfeld, uh, Mad About You. I mean, every show from the '90s drove me nuts. Um, from the nineties through the thousands. Um, I mean, girls at least, you know, they were very upfront about it. Like, yes, we are very privileged and we're living in this space. We couldn't normally afford if we were this age. Um, so I give them credit for that. Uh, the, the, I I remember the girls in broad city too. I remember them saying like, we were pissed that the apartment was as nice as it was that we had. And it was like, and it still was not like a super nice apartment, Yeah, (laughs) but you know, they wanted a worse, they wanted it to be worse worse because they're like, that's "That's more realistic. Oh yeah. They're so real. They're hilarious. This is what it is. (laughs) It's a a great show. It is a good show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so that was, um, you know, I, when I was writing the, the the series, I also realized, you know, I have a, uh, my wife and I live in a railroad apartment, railroad style apartment in Brooklyn. So we could, and the, um, the front half, uh, this not, this wasn't our doing. The landlord must've done this years ago or decades ago, painted the front like this horrible pink, uh, pinkish color. <clears throat> so, um. And the back is, is got this wallpaper that looks totally different. So 
we took the front half and made that one apartment and then the back half became the the three guys apartment so I, if you watch the the series uh Mata and Sam's apartment in chapters six seven and eight is um is the front half of our apartment and then the back half is um is uh Babakar and and Dawit and Abdul's apartment so it, it, this way we, you know so like keep thinking about the budget like while I was writing it I was like thinking all right how many I've got three apartments in this show how can I um how can I you know do this with without a lot of money so i thought all right well i have one i have one place i can split into two places um so yeah it definitely influences your your writing but not necessarily in a bad way i mean you can't get too paralyzed i do write much bigger budget stuff as well and i know going into it it's going to be bigger budget so i'm like all right that's I'm not going to worry about the production. You can go balls to the walls on those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I might as well. Let's Car crash. All the locations in the world. Explosion. Yeah. Yeah. Explosion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next superhero. Um, so I wanted to have you talk some about line producing because I feel like that's something that producer is such a broad term, I feel like, and it can encompass so many things. And so specifically, if you were to describe line producer... How would you describe line producer? Sure. Um, I mean, the line producer and the production manager have just about the same job title. So if you hear one, you can think about the other one. Um, uh, in, in theory, a line producer is a little bit higher than the production manager, but in practical terms they operate more or less as equals maybe the line producer can sign checks and the production manager can't so some, something like that but so the line producer works for the producer and is responsible for the day-to-day nuts and bolts uh putting together of the of the shoot from from below the line uh so <clears throat> um in theory the producer is going to be thinking about you know big picture stuff like how can I cast this so that I can sell this or how am I going to get the financing together? Um, who's going to buy this once it's done? Um, working with the writer. Some producers are fantastic at story, but really no crap about actual production. And that's fine. That's, that's totally fine. Uh, the line producer's job is to, um, help hire the crew you don't always hire the whole crew. You know, sometimes you're 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 already working with a director who's brought in his or her people, and then you fill in the positions that that haven't been filled in yet. Um, you run the you you're usually responsible for coming up with the final budget, um, and then uh, doing at least one or two of the drafts of the schedule. At some point, the AD kind of takes over the schedule part of it, hopefully, and. Um, <clears throat> And then you work with the AD. The AD is kind of like the person in charge of the set, and then you're in charge of the the offset operation. So you're making sure that like as the as long as the AD is keeping the crew running on schedule today, you're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day. You know, um, uh, during pre-production, you're thinking about uh, do we have enough money for all the equipment we're going to need. Uh, do I have to steal from one department to pay for another department's stuff? Um, uh, you know, are you, 
do we have all the transportation we need? And uh, do I need to bring make arrangements for actors and cast? Uh, sorry, actors and crew, and maybe extras to be brought to set. And then, are they going to be? Um, if you're shooting somewhere remotely where you need to put people up, you usually get stuck with um, figuring out the travel arrangements as well. Uh, you don't have to do this all your own. Um, I mean, most projects I work on. I've worked on, I've come up with some way to split all these jobs. We've all come up with some way to split all these jobs between us. Sometimes it's just me. Sometimes it's me and the producer. Sometimes it's me, the producer, production manager. Uh, sometimes I've got some people working under me. Sometimes it is just me <clears throat> kind of managing everything. Um, uh, you know, depending on the scope of the, how big the, crew is and the budget is um sometimes you don't really need a whole lot of other people um to to sort of uh to function but you know i guess you're you know as opposed to like the producer who's <clears throat> i guess the sorry i'm trying to come up with a concise answer here but no you're as, doing great it's it that's the reason i wanted you to explain it because i feel like it's like when you try to explain producer i think it's the most as far as um, this, what your scope is in a project, I feel like it's the most complex. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the producer kind of shepherds the project from beginning to end. Um, you know, from from development through financing, pre-production, production, post distribution, and you know, um, as a line producer, you come aboard during pre-production, ideally at some point early on. Uh, sometimes not so early on. And then you're there through production and then a little bit of post, like then you kind of hand off things to the producer or ideally, again, if there's a post supervisor kind of picks up where you leave off, then they manage the post people, um, <clears throat> the post process. Um, during the shoot itself, you're kind of responsible for managing the budget and the expenses. So as the money is being doled out, you're making sure you're not going over and you're working with the producer and the AD, uh, you know, those are the two people you kind of work with the most. Um, uh, and the production manager, if there, you know, if there's, there's one, you're working with these, those three people to kind of make sure the project is on track budget wise. Um, and if you're not, you know, w what can you do about that? You know, like, can we, can we shave a day off shooting? Can we, uh, do we need to go get some more money? That's always, that always sucks. Um, but when your budget is really low to begin with, sometimes that's the only practical answer. Um, can you cut something from someone else and they're not mm. going to be too pissed about it? You know, <clears throat> uh, that those are sort of the, the kind of discussions you're, you're, you're having, um, uh, hopefully not too often, but, the, yeah. but I mean, hopefully ideally everything's going smoothly and you're spending the money as, as it's supposed to be spent. Um, maybe an overage or an underage here or there. When you were working on your web series, like how, cause I think that's, I mean, how much do you dole out to costuming? How much do you dole, you know, like what was your kind of process? Like, did you know if you wanted to spend money on equipment versus, you know, set design versus. That and how do you navigate that? Cause I feel sure. like that's probably different from a project to project basis. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it all starts with the script breakdown. Um, so in addition to doing a, I mean, I do a director's breakdown. So I have some idea of, you know, in the script analysis from a dramatic point of view, but, um, I also do, uh, 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 a production breakdown. So you go through each scene and you find the, um, 
the elements in the scene, like the costumes, the set dressing items, the props, uh, stunts, extras, um, any kind of special art work or art department stuff that needs to happen, picture vehicles. And you, you list that all out with every scene. And then when you're done, you, you basically try to come up with an ideal schedule. It doesn't have to be perfect, but something that's, you know, relatively doable. Uh, and then you, you look at the, look at your items and try to budget them in some kind of appropriate way. So like, you know, if you end up with a, a list of props and then, you know, for some of the props, you can have a pretty good idea of how much it's going to cost. Like, okay, I need 10 water guns. Uh, I look it up on Walmart or Amazon. All right, 10 water guns is going to cost me five bucks each. Maybe I can get them on eBay for less, but you know, I can put down, you know, five times 10, mm -hmm. 50 bucks for that, you know, that kind of thing. Other things you're going to have to like make a more edu edu educated guess on like, maybe I can go to flea markets or do dumpster diving or go to free, free cycle, love free cycle. And, or maybe I've got, you know, uh, when I'm writing, I often think about what I own. So like, um, you know, I, I knew with three trembling cities, I had a good chunk of the props I needed anyway. Same with found in time. Like it was all crap that I had in my apartment, not all of it, but you know, or stuff I could get very, very cheaply. So like for the art department stuff, I, I feel like I have some handle on that for costume design. It's a little bit different. I think sometimes with, with both my last few projects, they've all been set in like contemporary, uh, you know, contemporary times in mm -hmm. New York and, so I figured I, I had a sense that I could reliably um, ask. I could, I could rely on the actors to provide at least some of their own wardrobe for which, you know, they got compensated. Um, and then, you know, wherever they fell short, like uh, if I had a costume designer, they, she would, she or he, usually it's a she in the last couple of cases, um, would be able to, to go out and buy and return stuff so that, uh, buy and return. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. Um, what do so we need? What do we not need? Take it back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you always have to factor some stuff is not going to be returnable, but, yeah. um, or sometimes the actor might fall in love with something and then you'll just let him or her have it. Cause yeah, they worked on your shoot for almost nothing. Um, what some productions will do is they'll have a wardrobe and production design sale. Uh, and, and when I first, uh, moved out to, you know, to, uh, many years ago when I first moved into, uh, my place in a story I lived in before I moved in with my, my now wife. Um, I furnished a good chunk of my apartment with, uh, with, uh, production design sales. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah. That's I impressive. like that. I think that's a life goal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't much, but you know, I think I got a dresser. Um, I scrounged, uh, um, some, some spare lumber and stuff for, for, um, and a, sh and a bookshelf, you know, stuff like that. And then everything else I either, I did pay for a couple things, but, um, so the, the, uh, when it comes to more complicated stuff, you may have to ask somebody who really knows what they're doing. Like, how much do you think this would cost? You know, like when it comes to visual effects or special effects, um, it helps if you know a little bit about how you want to achieve that stuff. Like, you know, are we talking about a person in a rubber suit or, um, are we going to do that all in post? Um, and then you have to set that up ahead of time when you're shooting, um, to make sure you're not creating more headaches later on. Um, 
you know, so if you look at, at like a really big budget example, I guess like Planet of the the Last Planet of the Apes <laughs> movie, those mm-hmm. actors were on set, but they were covered in motion cap outfits, and and they had what are called witness cameras that are you know sort of off to the side looking at um, the scene from another angle, so they can build out the the replacement apes in three D. Makes you know just there's all these things that you have to, you need to do again in pre-production to think about how you're going to do this stuff and then you can kind of budget it a little more accurately that's Sometimes definitely not an a, indie budget thing to do though, <laughs> that yeah. much that much cgi i mean <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes you just have to take a guess like and you're gonna uh you hopefully you're 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 gonna be right um there are some things that are almost impossible to budget for it completely accurately like uh, apartment rentals you know i mean because you get you get lucky and you get a friend who rents it to you for for nothing uh, for three trembling cities, uh, Shari, uh, who you just interviewed, mm-hmm. and and her hubby Chris, uh, they're both filmmakers. And for some insane reason, they said, "Oh yeah, you can use our apartment for one of the apartments." Uh, you know, and and that was great. We weren't counting on that. Um, but I've also had to pay like you know a lot more money in some cases for apartment usage. So, you know, um, locations can be really expensive too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the biggest difficulty in shooting in New York is, is, um, I mean, bars and clubs are, um, a little more predictable. Um, if you shoot on a slow during the day, obviously, and then you shoot like on their slowest day, which is usually Monday or like early in the week, Monday or Tuesday, you can usually get in there and you can find some place that'll be affordable, Mm -hmm. but you know, apartments are really tough to, to, to get affordable, uh, spots so. yeah because it's people's homes usually yeah, yeah. And it's like and that's a yeah. big ordeal to have i mean especially if it's a multiple day shoot if it's like oh yeah you yeah. know we're gonna be in here for a week and <laughs> right they have to make other um arrangements for themselves if they were planning on being there i find something always fun to do too is know people and when their out of town schedule is and be like hey there you I go need to i need to a uh, place and i was thinking something like yours would you be interested and then if they oh, are and if they are then be like okay well when are you when do you know you're not going to be there and we can kind of plan <laughs> our shoot schedule around that yep. and so then you can at least make sure that you're not like severely inconveniencing the people who you know are helping to make this possible for right. you yeah, yeah. And the other thing that's tough is like, um, and this is not as big a problem in out, uh, you know, once you get outside the city into more rural areas is like the space because you might have the perfect apartment, but then once you put even a small crew in there and all the gear, there's just no space left for anybody. Um, so, and the heat too, and the heat starts the to kill everybody. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, at least the equipment in the last 10 years has really shrunk dramatically, uh, equipment needs. So that's great. Um, I do not miss the the old days at all in that, <laughs> in that sense. Um, but but yeah, you know, even with a tiny, we had a very tiny crew on on both my last couple projects, and yet you know, you get into an apartment, and suddenly there's no, they're like, wow, what the hell there's happened? There's no space. There's no space. Yeah. Everybody's got to sit outside. <laughs> so, um, so. Was there a reason for um, the web series versus doing another feature, or was that more because the story focused on more characters? Or, um, I think part of it was that prior to, um, so prior to Three Trembling Cities, 
I'd written a much bigger budget project that I'm, inten I'm still intending to produce one of these days called Highway of Bones. It's a TV show uh, about, um, it's a supernatural slash war show about a group of refugees trying to flee a civil war. Uh, and that, that, of course, led to some of the ideas that ended up in Three Trembling Cities, you know, um, because I was researching um, places like Eritrea, where one of the characters is a refugee from um, in, in Three Trembling Cities. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, I started getting really interested in, in TV and episodic stuff. Um, originally, that, that's, that was going to be just a feature script, and then I just kept writing it, and suddenly I had like 400 script pages of stuff, and I realized this is a TV show. Um, and then uh, I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, the really exciting stuff is happening on TV and on the web, like not just sort of bigger TV, but also web series. I started watching more web series and realizing there was this great space and there's a lot of things that are appealing about it to me. I mean, I spent, you know, it took like a year and a half, almost two years of pre of writing and then getting the script ready and then shooting uh, found in time. The, the actual production was like 13 days. So it was like really fast. But then, and then it, because it was a complicated kind of film and I didn't have a lot of money for post, we took our time with post. So that took almost a year. So now I've been on a project now for two years and now it's just getting done, which means it's really only halfway done because now you got to go sell it. <laughs> so then I spent another year. So many stages. Oh yeah. Like another year waiting for all the top festivals to reject the film. Because you, you have to apply for those, at least one or two of them, because if you don't, you never know. But of course, if you do, your chances are still not good. Um, and then <clears throat> struggling to get a festival role going and then getting it, finally getting it sold to, or, or hooking up with a, a producer's rep who then took another year to get it sold to a distributor and then going on the festival circuit while that's happening you know, to try to build buzz for the project and reviews and, and other, and a fan base. And then another year after it's been sold before the distributor actually comes out with the film and you're still trying to get, you know, sort of keep the project alive. So after this, pro this process of five or six years on one project, I was really sick of it. And then at the end of it, you still don't see any money. So it's like, all right, <laughs> if I'm not going to get paid, um, I might as well do something in much smaller scale that I can uh, get out there in a year or less. You know, mm -hmm. ideally that would be the goal. So, I mean, it still took about a year because I wrote the script in the fall of 2015. Um, and then it was finished by the end of 2016. But when it was finished, I was like, fuck it. I'm, it's on YouTube, like right now. Like I don't have to wait for a distributor to uh, say they're going to do all this promotion that they're not going to do. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I don't have to... Um, you know, I don't have to wait for, you know, for all the, the mechanisms to get into place to get this thing to come out and happen. You know, I can just put it online and start the, start the, the, the next phase of things right away. So that was, that was really kind of where my head was at. And then also, yeah, you know, once I started writing it, I realized I really didn't have a, cause at one point I thought maybe I do have a feature and I just, you know, it's just be a low budget feature. But then I realized that the nature of the project, the nature of the script, once I'd finished it really lent itself much better to, to an episodic 
storyline, especially the way it's kind of split into two halves, mm -hmm. basically, sort of. So in addition to being the 10 episodes, it's also kind of like there, there's two halves of the story, two, two, two stories that kind of link up by the end. And I thought that would work much better as a, as a, um, in an episodic way than, 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 than trying to present it as a feature film. Um, so yeah, you know, it was great. You know, it was, you know, we shot it, uh, really quickly and then, um, cut it, you know, cut it very quickly, mixed it very quickly. And then we're, we're able to, to get it out the door and, and onto different platforms, you know, much faster than a, than a feature. And then, um, and it was a different vibe too. I don't know. I mean, since, since coming out with it and going to festivals, like the web series creators are just some of the nicest people I've met, you know, very supportive of each other. Uh, I don't know if you've found that. Yeah. Also. No, yeah. we've definitely, yeah. um, and ex excited. Uh, I, I don't know. There's, there's, because I don't know if it's because they are a little bit shorter too, so you're able yeah. to to cover more and to get it out there. And um, I know we we just had um, Rachel B. Joyce on, and she did a web series, and like there was a lot of she was like there was a thousand views in a week. And, oh yeah. yeah, you know, and to 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 see that number versus you know, I there's maybe fifty people in the theater at this festival, and you yeah. know, <laughs> you don't know who they're gonna tell, and you know it. And I think also too with the whole festival thing, not being able to show friends and family either because you have to you can't have it up publicly right. if you want right. to go to the festival. So that's that's a problem too. Is people are like or people you meet and they're like, can I see it? Can, can I, I see it? it? And yeah. you're like, well, yeah, but it's this password. It's like yeah. not easy yeah. to just like, oh, I met that person last week. Their web series was this, and just Google it and it's there, and I can watch the whole thing and. Um, enjoy it so yeah oh yeah i mean uh on the found in time um when found in time was going to festivals and especially when it went to sci-fi conventions the i got really um i mean some people absolutely hated the film and that's fine but there sometimes i'd get some really dedicated fans who would walk up to me afterwards and say hey i'd love to buy this like a dvd off you right now and i'd be like um gotta wait till the distributor comes out with it and uh you know, so like it was so, and you know that by the time the the guy has already forgotten about it, maybe or you know maybe maybe not. But I mean, the point is, you you may have just lost uh, a really important um, connection to an audience member, whereas um, you know they they the with three trembling cities, I can tell people, yeah, you can go watch this today. You know, and that it's just a whole different sort of. Um, the value is in is a, a different direction, mm -hmm. you know, which is great. I, mm -hmm. uh, it's more. I think it's better suited to being a creator. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't know how the it's going to shake out in the long run for people in terms of making money. Um, but since there is no money in independent film anymore, I think if you're going to create stuff, you might as well create stuff in this space anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um the lack of commercial issues I think has led to more daring stories, storytelling and and story um, it looks structures, like, yeah. Yeah, it looks like it's going that way, especially yeah. with the streaming and Hulu and Netflix and yeah, yeah, people are telling more stories and different stories, which is yeah. good cuz in order to really understand the way that the world works, we need to hear something from every different angle. Yeah. Do you have um, any passion project you're working on? Like any, 
you seem to really like sci-fi. Is that is that the case? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, like any big cool sci-fi <laughs> dream project you'd love to make? Um, I mean, I still want to make High Wave Bones uh, because that kind of melds together uh, a lot of things I'm interested in politically. You know, talking about uh, not just refugees but civilians in war, um, and a lot of the issues that I mean, when I was writing the this in 2013 there wasn't as much coverage about this and now uh the first draft in 2013 or 2014 2014 there wasn't as much coverage about this but then since then um you know what's what's a lot of the things i was writing about um have have become more well known but there's still no sort of end in sight unfortunately um and and also combines that with the supernatural sort of elements. So I'm I am going to be taking the um, our our pilot our yeah you know, the pilot script and some pitch do, some pitch um, documents to um, some producers this fall. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I still That's want to exciting. do a second season of Three Trembling Cities, and we're. Uh, trying in the process of trying to hook up with some producers to go up a, a level. Um, I'd love to do it as a slightly bigger show, like a half hour format. I think it would be kind of perfect because then we could add some more characters that we didn't have. I didn't like, I didn't have a chance to get into, there were a couple of characters I, I had to take out of the, the first season because um, I just didn't have the space, the running time. Um, but you know, we, we, there, there's a whole other, you know, like one of the things that you never, you very rarely see on TV is Asian American immigrant characters. Um, you know, and yet there are huge, uh, in New York city specifically, they're a huge part of our, of the culture of New York. So, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there's two, three characters, uh, um, uh, daughter first generation daughter and then uh mother and father who i wanted to to sort of get into um and then a couple of other characters that i wanted to bring in so i'd love to do that um you know there's a couple of much smaller projects that are on the back burner right now until i can get them um get some interest in them yeah you know i'm also co-wrote a script about um uh that we're that that we're pitching right now to producers uh it's about a uh it's called die hunter which is a south african word for the hunter um and it's about a poacher who gets out of prison it's uh, set in south africa it's about a poacher who gets out of prison and becomes a ranger sort of protect the animals he used to hunt and you know he's not doing it for any high ideals he's doing it because he needs to f feed his family like his his uh his wife and his two daughters. Um, and, you know, they're, um, it kind of tries to examine the problem from a, a, a South African-centric position. I think a lot of uh, the stuff I've read is very American, like, you know, let's just kill all the poachers. And I'm like, you know, oh, that's yeah. really not helpful. Like, yeah. like most poachers are, are in the same are in this doing this not because they hate animals or because you know they're 
uh, they're terrible people. It's because they need to eat. And, you know, until you solve the poverty problem, you're not going to solve the poaching problem. Um, and it's not just the, the tusks or the skins. Like there's also people are, are eating, are, are, are um, hunting animals for their, for their, for their food too. Um, so again, you know, until you solve hunger, um, which is all, this is all human uh, made problems. This is not an environmental problem fundamentally. Like until you solve like the problem of distribution and, and uh, equitable treatment for everybody, this is going to go on. So, you know, that's the, this character is wrestling with this in kind of microcosm. Like how does he, uh, you know, and the, the Rangers don't trust him, you know, cause he used to be their oh, enemy, yeah. The, yeah. Po the other poachers that used to be his friends and, and, um, uh, you know, they don't, they hate him now because he's working on the other side and it kind of puts, and his, you know, there's a whole sort of subplot with his daughter who's now getting into sort of the modern version of poaching, which is black market, um, trading, uh, which is getting her in trouble. So, you know, there's like, um, we were trying to, you know, the, my co-writer and I were trying to examine these things, uh, but also do it in a kind of not overly heavy kind of way. There's right, to present to all that. Well, yeah, so. to present everything in a way that people yeah. can see it from different angles. Yeah. Really My co-writer like is also named Arthur. It's really funny. <laughs> Arthur and Arthur. Arthur, Arthur Scott and, and, <laughs> yeah, and Arthur Vinci. So, you know. I love that. He's would great. You, I met would, him. Oh, oh sorry. Good. No. Uh, I met him at uh, um, American Film Market a couple of years ago and uh, two, two American Film Markets ago and we got to talking and we had a lot of the same interests and he had this idea and then we fleshed it out, and now our our uh, manager is taking it out to different producers. So I think it's really interesting. It, it is really interesting, and um, like I mean, I feel like that has become more aware. People are more aware of poachers yeah. and what's yeah. going on because of social media, and yeah. you can post a picture, and it's horrible. And so people, you know, it, it's very Shame sensational. Yeah. So so you get emotionally engaged by seeing a photo of an animal or whatever. Oh but. sure. Yeah. Um, would you ever write a book again? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you enjoyed it? I loved it. Um, I think I've been toying with the idea of taking Highway of Bones and turning it into a novel. Uh, and a couple of people have suggested that to me. I actually wrote, I tried that with the first, um, you know, first two, two episodes. And that was a lot of, it was a lot of fun to write fiction again after writing screenplays um there's a huge amount of detail you have to leave out of scripts just because of the format and it was nice to go back to that as far as nonfiction, i'm not sure i mean i've written some short form pieces on medium that are more about politics um you know their opinion pieces uh it would be interesting to write something you know sort of more sustained i i you know my my publisher would love it if I wrote a book about, you know, post, um, you know, <coughs> we've, we've toyed around with that idea. Like, so, so, you know, preparing for takeoff was about pre-production and preparing for landing would be about <laughs> post-production. Little bookends. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, hard. it's tough for me because I think post, um, I mean, I've, I've post supervised as well as, officially as well as unofficially and so i think i could talk about it you know that's sort of not not about the uh i think there's a ton of great books on editing and sound design this would be more about managing uh that process you know and and getting your getting through that um 
So it'd be for sort of more over, more from a producer's perspective and a director's perspective. Like just it would be so, sort of a companion piece of preparing for takeoff. The problem is that it's so. <laughs> it was uh, to write preparing for takeoff. I every day after my day job, I would sit in a um, atrium or coffee shop somewhere every day and and bang out like just keep working, keep writing, and um, I didn't do anything else for like a whole summer uh, for four months. I think, I mean, I had, you know, there was other, uh, so I don't know if I could do that again right now because I've got too many other things happening, but it'd be great. <laughs> um, writing the fiction would be a little easier, I think yeah. in a weird way, because I could do that sort of a little slower. Um, but when I was for preparing for takeoff, I was under contract to deliver by a certain date. And those like, yeah, so those deadlines We're, yeah. we'll make sure that we include a, um, a link straight to the book oh, so that if Thanks. the people who listen want to be able to buy, they can easily. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to say like, if people are looking for you online, where, where should they look? I mean, um, to see your projects and everything else. Three trembling cities is, is a good spot to start with. Cause that's got the latest project. Um, chaoticsequence.com has, you know, links to all the different things I've done, but, uh, you know, and that's always, your production company, that's right? a production company. Um, but I think, you know, uh, three trembling cities is, you know, where I'd love people to go first. Cause you know, <laughs> I want them to watch the, watch the show. Um, and you should watch the show. It's good. It is oh, good. Thank it you. is good. It's a, it's a perspective I think that doesn't get told a lot. Not in that way. I, yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, it was kind of funny. Like I won, the, you know, so the show won the um, diversity and representation award at the Toronto Web Fest. Sorry, I'm now I'm bragging. No, you should no, brag. You should. But it's it was, the place uh, to brag. <laughs> but it was kind of funny because, you know, honestly, I felt like any of the other, uh, I thought the other um, projects in that category um, in, in the, in, among the nominees should have won it or could have won it. Um, it, and it was a little strange, like <laughs> standing up at the award ceremony and I'm like the cis hetero, the cis male hetero white guy <laughs> getting the award for diversity. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but the good thing about the web, sp I, yeah. So that but you're was giving funny. a voice, you're giving a voice guess, to these yeah. stories. And, yeah. and I, I mean, you're also giving opportunity to actors who, Traditionally, I mean, it's getting better, especially in TV yeah, and uh, yeah. on web, but traditionally haven't been shown in films particularly. And and not as they are, instead of being an arc stereotype of what people think whatever demographic they fit into is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that was um, that was really exciting. I mean, um, Arash, who plays uh, uh, Beruz, he he and I have known each other for a few years now, and uh, I he was actually I wrote the he's very different from the character, but I wrote the character with him in mind to play it. Um, but uh, it was really we we've spent a lot of time talking about this problem, like how do you uh, how do you sort of go from playing you know terrorist number five or exotic Indian woman, you know, like you know how do you get past those sort of um, stereotypes to 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 play more fleshed out characters. And it is, and I'm not even sure three trembling cities completely escapes that because it's the primary thing that the series is focusing is on, on is these characters who are immigrants. 
I mean, one of the things would be nice in season two would be to sort of get into other aspects of their person of, of their personalities and their stories. But, um, but yeah, it is something that like, I think you just don't, um, you, I, I haven't, I still haven't seen it all that, all that much, uh, except in the web space. I think, you know, there's been a great, um, there's been a few great, uh, shows that have come out where with more diverse and interesting casts and stories, you know, so that's, what's kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, it's great to have new stories. Yeah. Great new perspectives. Like it's just important to make the world go round. Well, and to, to see, I mean, the empathy happens when you can put yourself in someone else's shoes. And if you have stories from different viewpoints, you're able to understand the world better and, and people that are different from you are from different places or have a different religion or wh whatever it can be. And stories connect you on a human level that I think not, you could give statistics or you could get, I don't know, talks, but there's something about watching a movie or a show or yeah. that kind of puts people in another person's shoes very it's quickly. True. It's true. Well, thank oh, you yeah. so much for sitting down and talking oh, to us. You. Yeah, we uh, loved having you and hearing your perspective and hearing. Long. Oh <laughs> no. no, no such thing. You're gonna edit, right? <laughs> a little we'll, bit. We'll figure little it bit. out. Okay. A little bit. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sitting down with yeah, us. Yeah, and now we will have links to Arthur's book and Three Trembling Cities um, and all of his and is everything else he's working on. Yeah, Thanks. exactly. I'm awesome. Page. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all the things. All the good things. Thanks. So, oh. All right. Can I do one more shout yeah, out? Yeah, uh, shout out. So I just wanted to, because um, I don't think I gave him enough credit, the producers on the show, uh, uh, you know, I didn't do Three Trembling Cities on my own. So I got to give you. them, I mean, in addition to the cast and the crew, I also wanted to shout out um, Daria Summers, Ben Wolf, who also shot it. And Deborah Biswas, who is also unfortunately married to me, unfortunately for her, <laughs> stuck with me throughout this process. Uh, but she, the three of them, really, you know, I, they were the producers on the project, and they deserve, you know, full uh, credit for that. So, a, a spouse of a filmmaker is usually a producer in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> Absolutely, but she, you know, she also did did a lot of the producing. Yeah, you know, that's great. Um, so even though she is a little shy about it, she deserves credit. So. I love it. Awesome. I told Kevin, he's, yeah. I'm like, you're going to be a film producer, whether, <laughs> whether you, you like it, it or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again thank for you. joining yes, thank us. You so thanks much. for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye.